You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hi, and welcome back to Who Did What Now, the history podcast with me, Katie Charlwood, your host, lover of sea wenches and reader of books. Ah, here we are. We are officially in the festive season. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, yes, my tree has been up for weeks because it's 2020 and time is an illusion this year. So I thought, let's get into this season, the season of Christmas now as it has become. And what gets you in the Christmas spirit more than a mysterious murder or two in an Australia involving vintage villains, surprising schemes and of course, a shark or two. <laughs> let's dive in, shall we? Dive. Dive in? No? Okay, okay, so, um, yeah, today we're going to talk about the shark arm murder of 1935. Dun-dun-dun! Let's get right into it. I may mispronounce names, by the way, I should probably mention that, but, like, you know me at this point, I'm probably going to mispronounce a bunch of stuff. It's okay, tweet me at who did what now pod. you can uh, also email me at whodidwhatnowpod at gmail.com, I'm also on Instagram. Uh, so yeah, and TikTok. <laughs> I'm everywhere. Sorry. Okay, back, back. It's the seventeenth of April, nineteen thirty-five, and a fisherman is off the coast of Cookie Beach in Sydney, Australia, and he manages to hook the small shark, which is nice. But then, straight out of a Knock Me cartoon, or uh, that that scene in the Phantom Menace, <laughs> was always a bigger fish. Uh, a four-foot tiger shark swallows the smaller shark, and he thinks, "Nice one, mate." obviously. So he decides to take the larger shark, which is uneaten and decidedly more alive, uh, to the Coogie Aquarium Baths, because you think it'll be a cool attraction for the following Anzac Day weekend. Now, the Coogie Aquarium Baths, it, it could basically hold, I think, somewhere between 1,200 and 1,400 people. Yeah, And it's sort of fallen out of fashion, but they thought this will be a really good attraction. It'll bring people in. So Anzac Day is a day of remembrance in Australia and New Zealand, and it commemorates all those who died in wars and conflicts and uh, peacekeeping operations. So at this point, mainly it was for people who had who had passed in uh, things like uh, World War One, uh, more so. Anywho, at this time, sharks were basically public enemy number one, kind of like the opposite of Jaws. Now I just imagine an old timey wanted poster and like, have you seen the shark? If so, run away, swim away. Get away. 
avoid sharks <laughs> and the jets. I'm sorry, I'm not sorry. So in February, March of that year, three men had already been attacked slash killed slash chomped by sharks. Like, you know, uh, and they even had like bounty hunters uh, to rid Sydney of the demons of the sea. So the the cookie aquarium bats, <laughs> they were like, okay, this real life Ruby Roundhouse killer of men would be just the spectacle the crows would want to see. And they did. They packed the place out. So the tiger shark do 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 is living at large, swimming about in his uh, swimming about in his pool, reveling no doubt in his newfound fame. He gets the run of the pool, he's eating rather voraciously, up until the twenty fifth of April, and shit starts to get weird. On Anzac Day, when the place is fully packed to the brim, the shark is like moving slowly, it's banging into the side of the pool. It's been fairly disorientated, you know. And while a huge group of spectators watch, the shark starts to vomit up this dark, sort of bellious fluid. Um, it's just like, just and it's like, it chucks up a rat and a bird. And then to the complete shock and horror of the audience, a human arm. Fingers to elbow, I believe. Initially, they think, oh well, this is probably just an accident. Another tragic death of a poor young man who thought swimming in shark-infested waters was a tip-top idea. Alas, this was not the case. Upon closer inspection, it was clear that the arm was severed with a sharp implement of some kind, but too crudely to be in a surgical procedure. So, it was definitely... Hacked, sawn, or chopped off. It, 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 it was not professionally done. Well, that, that's arguable. With how, like, sharks have a pretty acidic stomach. Regarding uh, how acidic uh, the shark's gastric juices are, they were able to determine that the arm had been um, consumed between 8 to 18 days. So what they think happened um, is that the smaller shark had consumed the arm before the bigger shark chomped on it. So effectively, this was just before, at the latest, this would be just before the shark was caught. So clearly, this is a murder. Luckily, the arm had a pretty distinctive tattoo um, of two boxers sparring on the forearm. This was so lucky, in fact, that after seeing a report in a Sydney newspaper, um, I think it was the... Sydney, Sydney Truth, yes. After seeing a report in it, the police get a phone call from Edwin Smith, who was like, yeah, my brother uh, James Smith, um, his friends call him Jim, has been missing for a couple of weeks, and that does seem to be his arm. Again, the arm was so well preserved, they were actually able to get fingerprints from it. So the police were able to confirm that the arm had, in fact, previously belonged to one Jim Smith. Now, let me tell you about Jim. Jim was a bankrupt builder, ex-boxer, ex-bookie, and a small-time criminal with a record of minor convictions. He wasn't quite in the underworld, but he wasn't exactly, you know, he wasn't exactly, <clears throat> he wasn't quite in the underworld. He wasn't exactly rubbing shoulders with the criminal elite. He was more, say, underworld adjacent, 
as far as the complaints were concerned. Um, he was involved in illegal gambling rings and kind of stuff like that that was happening at the time. So the police start digging and they discover that Jim Smith had last been seen with his longtime buddy and expert forger, Patrick Brady. Now, Brady and Smith had been seen drinking at the Cecil Hotel in Cronula? Cronula? I'm going to go with Cronula. In Cronula, before returning to a cottage on Gunamata Bay that Brady had been renting. I hope these names are pronounced correctly. Anyway, the next morning, Patrick Brady gets a taxi. A Cronulla cabbie, if you will, who takes him all the way to North Sydney and drops him right outside the door of Cough businessman Reginald Lloyd Holmes. The cabbie said that Brady was like all dishevelled and acting weird and shaky and like as if someone was following him. And he also would not take his hand out of his pocket. He said it was like he was holding something in it. Um, in this like really deep pocket. Suspicious? Don't be suspicious. He's being suspicious. He's being suspicious. He's being suspicious. Okay, so... <laughs> Reginald Lloyd Holmes, a seemingly respectable entrepreneur, was nothing of the sort. He was in charge of a smuggling ring using speedboats and the like that were actually built in Holmes' own boat-building business. What has this got to do with the Severed Arm, you ask? Well, turns out our good pal Jim was a seasonal employee of Mr. Reginald Lloyd Holmes, often driving the speedboats during smuggling jobs. Okay, so this is 1935, so this is just, you know, you got to remember, we're in the past, Okay. So what they would do is they would have packages and the packages would float on top of the water. They'd dump them out, they'd float on top of the water and Smith would go driving around in the speedboat and start picking up the packages. That's it. That's as complicated as it was. And then after, you know, they've been doing this bit for a while, they start a scheme um, and they bring Patrick Brady into the fold. Um, They need him because, again, he's an expert forger. So I think it was some sort of insurance scam they were they were trying to flog and yeah. So allegedly um, Smith and Holmes have a falling out over a failed insurance scam. There may have been some blackmail on Smith's part involved. And the police, if nothing else, are highly suspicious. So Brady and Holmes are taken in for questioning. And firstly, everything they have is circumstantial. They don't have enough evidence. And secondly... Holmes is all, um, Brady who? New Telegram? Who this? So weeks go by, and just when the case hits an apparent dead end, Mr. Reginald Lloyd Holmes comes crashing through it on a speedboat. On the 20th of May, 1935, Holmes speeds out of his boat jet into the harbour on one of his very fast, very special speedboats. He shoots out into, so he's there out in the bay. He pulls out a pistol, and he attempts to dive by suicide. I'm Jane Perlez long-time foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off. An eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. 
we'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. And this doesn't quite work. So he shoots himself in the head and plummets into the water. But he's not dead. In fairness, he's going full Rasputin here. So he falls into the water. And in a crazy random happenstance, a rope from the boat catches around his wrist and it prevents him from drowning. And from landing in the water, it revives him. It shocks him and revives him. And he manages to scramble back on board the boat. And then, I don't know, like the, the water sea police, maybe it's the regular police, who have a boat. I'm assuming they have both something. Anyway, Coast Guard, maybe? Anyway, they were basically alerted to this um event and they take chase. So they chase this man for four hours. Four hours. And they go out past Circular Key, somehow making it through all the mid-morning ferry traffic. I mean, it's not a quiet bay. <laughs> and out they go. They go down right down Sydney Harbour. And finally, when he's um just around about where the Sydney heads are, he gives up he just stops and he's like all right i give myself up let's let's do this and so my chums the plot thickens holmes ends up singing like a damn canary he's got names he's got places he's got dates and he was ready to squawk on brady so holmes claimed that brady had killed smith and dismembered him and he gave him a quote-unquote Sydney send-off. And effectively, this is putting body in a trunk and then dumping it into Guatemala Bay. He then claimed that Patrick Brady showed up at his house and showed him Jim's very distinct tattooed arm as proof that he had dismembered him and chucked him in and then threatened him, demanding £500. £500 to keep quiet about the whole affair. Now, before the official inquest into Jim Smith's death takes place, the day before, Reggie, good old Reggie there, he uh, goes and withdraws £500. Oh yeah, so as he's giving up and he's squawking on Brady, he's like, yeah, as he's, as he's squawking on Brady, he's like, when he, when he is caught and he gives himself up to the police on the boat, he says um, something along the lines of, I don't know who did it but if you give me a date i'll go get the bastard i'm paraphrasing he basically said i don't know who did it but if you want i'm gonna go deal with him anywho <clears throat> the day before the inquest reggie withdraws 500 pounds which is um in today's money is around thirty-six thousand pounds um forty thousand euro sixty-five thousand australian dollar that so <clears throat> In today's money, I'm going to go around the world here. I'm going to do the ones that I know. Okay. So £500 in 1935 would have been £36,000 today. €40,000. Uh, 65000 Australian dollars and 48000 American dollars. Okay. So he takes out the 500 and he tells his wife later that evening that he has to meet someone. And off he goes. So, at 1.20am, mere hours before the inquest, on the 12th of June, Holmes' car 
was found at the deserted docks at Dawes Point. Slumped over the steering wheel, slumped over the steering wheel of his car was the body of Mr. Reginald Lloyd Holmes. So parked in Hexton Road under the Harbour Bridge, um, there he lay with three bullet wounds in his chest. Some people theorise that this was an elaborate suicide with Holmes taking a hit out on himself. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it's it's more likely that so the trial only lasts two days because it doesn't have any um, relevant witnesses. And the case against Patrick Brady is so circumstantial that the case just crumbles. He gets to stroll out of court, probably doing whatever dance was popular at the time, I'm assuming. What happened between the Charleston and the Jive? The American swing? Was it swing? Anyway, one of the things they said, one of the things they said was, um, like, we can't prove this was a murder because we only have the arm. <laughs> we don't have the rest of the body. So how do we know he's actually dead and not just out there chilling out with one arm? Like, so, I mean, it's 1935. Um... I know amputations happened, but it, it wasn't a surgical one. I feel like it's fine. No, it's fine. It's fine. And after this, after this, more information comes out. And oh, my chums, how the plot thickens. As it turns out, our dear friend, Jimmy Smith, was a police informant. Which means, you know, the quote unquote rat was caught and dealt with. Snitches get stitches. Or more like snitches get hacked up and served to the sharks, but whatever. I always find it strange if he's like an official informant and or he's a confidential informant or whatever, and no police officer was like, oh, I know him. That can't be. That's that guy who gives info to me. And, um, oh, wait, wasn't that guy dobbing everybody in? Like, all right. And there was also a possibility of a gang war going on yeah another option is that he was actually killed as a result of a of a there was a gang war going on and he was just you know uh ratting on the wrong guys you know but there we go and that is the shark arm murder of 1935 so too long didn't listen <laughs> tldl too long didn't listen small shark eats arm big shark eats little shark Big Shark goes on display. Big Shark regurgitates arm. Conveniently recognisable human arm recognised by criminal's brother. Tales of intrigue ensue. Attempted suicide. Speedboat chase by suspect. Capture, confession, more murder. Case thrown out because one arm does not a corpse make. <laughs> oh... So I am now getting ready for the rest of the festive season. We are mainly decorated. So I'm going to write my Christmas cards, I think, soon and get them done. So, but yeah, um, that's a that's a fun one for all of us. But is everyone getting into the festive spirit? If you have anything you want to say to me, um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. And I have an email, it's whodidwhatnowpod at gmail.com. So if anything, um, if I have, if you want to send me phonetics, <laughs> if I have mispronounced things, go ahead, it's all there. Uh, if there's anything you want to say, uh, you can tweet me, you can Instagram me, whatever. I think my DMs are open. Um, if they're not, sorry. Uh, I also do historical hot takes on TikTok because it's fun. 
And I have to actually plan what I'm going to cook for Christmas because I don't know yet. And I have realised that I have far too many Christmas stuffies. Like, I have so many. I've started collecting Christmas plushies. And honestly, I'm not even mad about it. Am I the only one who has a Christmas wardrobe? Because I have a Christmas wardrobe. So, (laughs) that's everything and you can always message me, tweet me, all that jazz. If there's anything you really, really want me to cover, um, give me an email, shoot me an email, let me, let me know, um, anything I, any, I love people, places and things from ancient times to the relatively modern day, um, (laughs) and let's talk about it. Adios, au revoir. Auf Wiedersehen, my friends. See you next time. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off, wherever you get your podcasts.